Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Vikingology. The art and science of the Viking Age. I'm Thing One, CJ Adrian. I'm Thing Two, Terry Barnes. And today we're going to continue our fascinating discussion with David Zori of Baylor University. And the topic today will be... Chieftains. How to become one. Why you would want to become one, which I'm, I'm not sure we do, but power it's about power in the viking age and how to keep that power and we'll even talk about some fun things like valhalla yeah. and feasting for all you beer aficionados or meat aficionados it's gonna be a good one yeah and things like why they would call chieftains ring flingers a ring flinger sounds dirty <laughs> the viking right. age, everything is dirty <laughs> everything's dirty all right well let's dive in okay Okay, so um, since we're talking about, you know, for this particular episode, like the whole issue of chieftains and power and stuff like that, and also because of the Viking Age proper, at least the period of time that we kind of tend to use of like mid to late 8th century to maybe around the year 1100 or something. I mean, the majority of that is the, the pre-state formation period that you're talking about, where it's these right. chieftains and petty kings and what have you. And I mean, one of the things that I often find with my students and, you know, the lore of what's so interesting about the Vikings is they come with this idea that these are like these extremely egalitarian, you know, societies and, and everybody's equal and happy and living in this, you know, whatever, you know, kind of paradise of some sort of, I don't know, yeah, egalitarianism and but we know, right? I mean, that th this is a very class conscious society and there were people who held power. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, like a maybe like what is a chieftain and was a chieftain always a Viking and vice versa? And, you know, how did they get into power? And then the important part, too, which I find really interesting in, in your work, and you and I've talked about this a lot, is the is the feasting and just kind of these these ways that. Because when you just said there, right there, asking the question, how do they get these men to go on these boats? Well, that's part of it, right? Is this this quid pro quo kind of life? I mean, so can you talk to us about the whole dynamic yeah. of what it means to be a chieftain? Yeah. So first, to address the egalitarian myth, I mean that that is definitely a, a myth, right? We know. I mean, the the poetry of the Viking Age sets it up really well too. Um, I should mention is Rig's Thula. It's this uh, this poem about Rig who is basically a version of Heimdall, who rides uh, around in, in the world and visits, uh, basically is the progenitor of the class system that exists in the Viking Age. And the poem describes that. He goes to uh, a slave's house, or he goes to a poor house and, and sleeps with the, the lady of the house. Well, somehow this is okay, even though the guy's there. And then the children of, of that coupling of Heimdall and, and the woman of that house leads to this, all the slaves of society. And they do menial labor and they have ugly names and they look ugly. So not only, and they're dark skinned. So not only are they kind of uh, horribly classist, the, the Vikings, you know, but they also believe that class somehow is reflected in your appearance and even, you know, in the color of your skin. So there, there's an issue there, right, of course. So then, the, he writes the second household, and that's the household of the free farmers, and they do things that farmers do after uh, Heimdall uh, sleeps with that lady of that house and forms the, the children that make up the, the farmer. Then he goes to the last house, which is a, is a rich house, and he eats very nice food, which he hasn't been eating in the other two households. And 
and uh, he has a whole group of children from and, and, and descendants from that coupling that is the Jarls and the Kings. And what they do is they just fight. They don't really do anything productive. They just train to fight and they like, have these birds and things like that. And they eat on nice platters and they drink booze, which is a very kind of, this is the first time of all those households where alcohol comes in. And, and so I'm very interested in, in how these, these products of, of the economy are used in politics, which uh, uh, maybe I'll talk about uh, next. But anyway, so that's just to put to bed the idea that there was some kind of egalitarian ethos in, in the Viking Age. Now, one, you could say one ethos that there was in the Viking Age, I think, is a resistance to the centralization of power that comes in as kings start to gain more and more institutionalized power. So they were totally comfortable with classes as long as power was kind of personal. And most societies right, have these, these alpha types, these aggrandizers that want to get more and more and more power. And that's one way we can conceive of uh, Viking chieftains. Uh, so the chieftains would be from that last class of the, of the warriors. Uh, but I think they also had other arenas of, of power. You could say so okay the image of the vikings is the warriors the raiders the conquerors we understand that you you go abroad you steal something you enrich yourself uh, but the key important thing is there what do you do with the wealth when you come back home and this brings up the other arenas of, of social power so i think that the feast the sort of the, the banquet that is bringing people together to eat together was a, a very big structuring element the viking uh, societies that we're looking at. And then the last one is probably the, the political arena of assemblies. They would have assemblies to make laws, to recite laws, and to solve disputes. And the chieftains were traditionally the leaders of those disputes. Now, there's no executive power. There's no police force, which means violence and, and feud resolving is all privatized to an extent. But they're still the leaders of whatever law that, that exists around that. So uh, how do they then maintain this power? So one is through the violence, right? You can threaten to beat somebody up or go and steal something from them. So I think that that kind of mobster style rule is definitely in effect in, in the Viking Age. But I think even more interesting probably is, is their use of resources and the feasting and gift giving that they do. Because again, you have to convince people to follow you. You know, they don't have monopoly of force as such, which is one of the definitions of, of state level powers, monopoly as a force. You know, if we here in America wanted to oppose the U.S. government, it would be highly unlikely we'd be successful. Right? It's just not happening. We're living in a state-level society. Uh, they did not. So one way to, to get people to, to follow you is to indebt them. And you can, um, you can give them gifts. So there's a huge literature on, on reciprocity and gift-giving. And we understand this uh, even today, even though it doesn't structure our society per se, but I give you a Christmas present. And you usually would give me one. If you didn't give me a present present, I gave one to you, you might feel bad. Right? And you go, oh, shit, now I got to give him a present at some point, or now we're in another relationship. There is some, some inequality now because I've given something to you. So this also, in some ways, helped to structure uh, the society in the Viking Age. If a chieftain is able to, to redistribute the wealth that he's monopolized, and use he, but it could be she, uh, he monopolized those followers those potential followers owe something in return and if you look at the poetry you really see 
um, sort of interesting names for kings or, or uh, they have these poetic constructions where kings are gold flingers, destroyers of gold. Uh, one of my favorites is bracelet hating bracelet flinger, right? So it's just the, the give away the wealth. And so they, they accumulate it to give it away. You know, they're not like, you know, a dragon from, from Lord of the Rings or something that sits on the wealth. The point of acquiring wealth is to give it away so that you get loyalty from, from the people that you're trying to indebt. And so what do you do with that loyalty? Well, you can go to an assembly and have uh, armed supporters if you're trying to get win a court case. You could say, hey, let's go on that boat together now because you owe me. Let's go get some more of that wealth. Now you go get some more of that wealth, you come back home, you redistribute again. So I think the political economics is part of what's driving those raids. And this is why I brought up the state formation stuff later, because once power is institutionalized, you don't probably need, that engine doesn't exist anymore. You don't need to go abroad to steal a bunch of wealth to then redistribute it, right? Because your wealth is, is, is developed from inside of your society and those institutional bonds are now now in place. So how does, can I continue a little bit on feasting? Because now, now I'm excited about talking about feasting. Although, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you do that, just one second. Can you quickly say, like, how does somebody actually become a chieftain? Okay. Um, so chieftains at the time, they had, we have different names for them, but one of the common ones is Goldi. So G-O-E-D-I, Goldi. And a Goldi is, um, Originally, the etymology of the word is, is God. So they had a religious role as well as a military leadership role and as well as a political leadership role. So if you look back into deeper Scandinavian society, there's a, there's a link between the, those different elements. A person becomes a chieftain typically by inheriting some sort of power. But it, it doesn't necessarily always stick within the family. Some upstart farmer can acquire a chieftaincy by getting enough followers or buying a political role from somebody as far as we can tell from the sources so there is a fluidity there that uh that maybe we don't think of it is still you know very much a class society that if, if your father was in the chieftain class you're likely to be one too but uh, it's it's more flexible but they're not like straight up primogenitor kind of. No, no, primogenitor no was not was not a thing. So it doesn't also have to be doesn't have to be the first born son. Let's say that inherits a chieftaincy. It usually is. I'm saying son because it's usually the the male. I mean, it is a male centered society. The males were the ones that that spoke in public. That doesn't mean that that females weren't very powerful because we have a lot of examples of, of female leaders. But at least in the political sphere. They're not referred to as as Goldar uh, in in this in the same way. Okay, so, I, so then, go ahead, CJ. I was, I was just going to say, from what I'm uh, understanding here, so I mean, from our modern lens, we we've all grown up in institutionalized, you know, government. So we're used to having a very strong, you know, uh, uh, imposed view of of the social hierarchy, right? Uh, versus, it sounds like then without that in place so we have a warrior class right so we've already delineated three classes we have within that top warrior class then there's there's kind of this economy of gift giving and indebtedness and so forth 
And so we assign this word chieftain and we think of kings or chiefs or, you know, like strong, strong leaders. But really, I mean, uh, we only have the word Gothi, which doesn't really mean that it sounds like from from their point of view, like their point of view, it's more fluid where like, well, this year, you know, uh, so-and-so is kind of the, he's the, I, it, it almost sounds like there's a little bit of a popularity contest going on and you don't necessarily have to kill the guy above you to become the more influential person. But as far as like the structure of society at the time, my understanding is we have, especially particularly in Norway, I'll just speak for Norway right now, that we have the disparate um, farmsteads, right? So this is, and each family kind of lives on this separate farmstead and there's the next farmstead down the way. So as far as like, when we think of chieftains, so these aren't consistent, it's not consistent leadership for the local people, but rather, uh, like you said, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's a it's a fluid, fluid situation where it can change on a whim almost. Uh, if one season your farm has a bad crop and mine has a good crop, now I have more food to hand out and I can indebt you guys. And then now I'm the chieftain, yeah. right? Is that, am I get, understanding this correctly? More or less, you can make, you can increase your social power by exactly those means. Yeah. And you might be able to, to buy the right. Now there does seem to be uh, a little hurdle to jump, you know, so to be the person that gets to represent others at the things, which is what they call uh, the assemblies that are, that are important meeting places. So for, from our sources, we do think that, that those are titles that had to be acquired somehow. And, um, but you're, you're right there, as far as we can tell from the written sources and the few runic inscriptions that we have, um, the, there, there is there is fluidity of that. Now there are other titles too. That there's a general title for a, a chieftain of Thinki, that is like a, a leading man. There's lenter man. There's yarl is a word that comes up too. So there are other titles uh, available. The king also tries to to make uh, other kind of leaders that are his representatives in the in the area. Absolutely. Um, but I think even a, let's say, even if you were, let's say you were a rich farmer, but you didn't have the title of Gobi, um, could you compete with a, a chieftain? Yeah, I absolutely think so. If you could, um, if you could gather enough supporters, marshal enough wealth, lead successful expeditions abroad, either trading or raiding, I think you absolutely could could do and there in that lies some of the the instability of uh, of the society as well so i think you can make those assaults then take the role you could probably take it by by force as well so is the idea of like challenging a chieftain gothi or whatever it be uh the idea of challenge like like i'm thinking of like season one of the vikings when ragnar challenges um, Gabriel Byrne. I don't remember his his name in the I know the actor's name, Gabriel Byrne. I don't remember the the chieftain's name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this was years ago. I only watched season one, by the way, so that's as far as I got. Yeah. But there's that whole scene where Ragnar challenges him, kills him, and then everybody's like, "Now you're the leader." Like, is that even feasible yeah. in that in this context? I mean, I think it'd be a little more complex than that. And you know, did it ever happen? I don't know, probably. You know, I but I. I think it's a little harder because you gotta you have to convince people, 
and you you are interlinked with a bunch of other let's say power wielders so i mean we know more about because we have a lot of sagas written about attempts for kings to take over traditional chieftaincies or claim land rights uh, claim the odal which is like the inherited family property of of people for instance like when Harold Finehair, you mentioned Norwin, Harold Finehair wants to extend the, his kingdom into areas of Norway where his traditional powers weren't extended. It is a, it is a several century thing before uh, the king can establish himself. You really have to, to, to subjugate all those old power structures. So I, I think that you need to convince folks and perhaps the convincing can happen both with military probably needs to happen both with military victory but then also providing and yeah. therein comes the, the the feasting part again the gift giving entering into those social relationships having yeah. having enough resources to take on that role you always think of it in terms of like ultimate like politicking and power broking it's it's like and because of the fact right we know that the men who are loyal to a particular chieftain they can change that loyalty essentially at at will right i mean they can just throw it in the their hat in the ring of some other guy if he's promising better things or whatever but like you said i mean the whole idea of the feasting and the gifts and stuff is it's it's a way to grease the skids right i mean it's like it's it's the way to show your generosity and that you're a chieftain worthy of their support but it also i think in an interesting way is a way to um minimize potential challenges to that power right yeah. by keeping people kind of you know uh, right. understanding that you're the guy you know right. yeah right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah so go ahead with the piece yeah. that's cool no i mean i think it's a uh... The politics of, of feasting relies on the reciprocity and gift giving. So it relies on the same vocabulary, is that if you give something, something's owed to you in return. And essentially, I think we even know this today, no gift is really free, right? I mean, there's always some social capital there, and that definitely was the case much more so in, in the Viking Age. So there are lots of things you can do with a, in a feast. And, you know, anthropologists divide feasting into a bewildering number of categories and almost every anthropologist has a different division, but essentially they can have multiple functions. So you can, you know, you and I, Terry, we could take turns hosting each other in kind of elaborate dinners where we also invite other friends. And as long as we take turns at a reasonable level, that's like, that's just friendship alliance stuff. And then maybe when, when something goes down or, or, or we need to mobilize people to do something like out of the podcast or something like that. Maybe you can then reach out to your friends and bring them in, right? And and that that's Help that's you edit your book. There you go, right? So there's no way to say no, right? And so 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 that's just a straight up alliance, right? One to one social groups can be formed in that way, and they are formed in that way. Then there's there's kind of the more unequal types, which is kind of what we got into with the with the, the chieftains, where it's a it's a kind of more of a one way street, you know that the uh, the chieftain will continually feast uh, his supporters. They may even live with him in some of these uh, kind of richer chieftain examples, and I think we should always think of um, 
one way to approach it at least is to think of the the stories we know from from Norse mythology. They're cooked up by by chieftains and people sitting around with chieftains and poets and this kind of thing. So the gods are living like their best chieftain life, right? The ultimate chieftains. They have everything that a good chieftain would want in excess, right? In, in unrealistic excess. So let's just take Odin, right? He would be, he's the war god. He's the, he's the most powerful god. So obviously he's going to be the best chieftain. So what does Odin actually have? Okay, so he's got really cool weapons. Okay, he, he's got ways to gather information from across the world, which is what a chieftain would also need. Okay, he's also really smart. What are the resources he has to offer people? He picks with his Valkyries. He picks the best dead off the battlefield. He brings them up to his house and he feasts them there. And that's, what, that's what's going down in Valhalla. He's the perfect chief. And what he does is he feasts his supporters on unending supplies of meat and unending supplies of booze. He's got this, this beast that has the best meat in the world, it says. They actually never describe what kind of animal it is. It's called Sayavinda. People call it a boar sometimes, but we don't really know for sure that it's a boar. Uh, maybe some kind of boar-like creature. And every night he gets slaughtered and they eat this, this meat and every morning it regenerates. So it's unending. And then there's a goat uh, on top of the roof that out of its udders flows unending supplies of mead uh, and they get to drink that. So these people that come to, to Odin, they eat and drink unending supplies of the two, probably the two main products of the feast that you would say even today, that might be the, at least I'm, I live in Texas now. You don't go over to have a proper feast unless there's some you know, brisket on the grill or something like that. There's definitely like a cooler of beer out there, right? So the, the same kind of principles apply there. There's so much more important. And then of course, those that army that Odin has and is accumulating through offering this type of feast. Um, he also has a ring, by the way, an arm ring that that multiplies constantly, that just gives off unending rings. So then you can see him. He really is the ring flinger too in, in that sense. And the army goes out and on all day, day they hack each other to pieces and kill each other. And then they're they're put back together again in the evening and, and continue their feasting. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for, for Odin to unleash them onto uh, the battlefield at Ragnarok. So I think I went into that whole detour to say, okay, what are the main elements there for chieftain power? It's this giant hall that can encompass all of these warriors, and it is unending supplies from the subsistence economy, meat and booze, that these chieftains are able to, to, to produce. And it's not always easy when you're up as far north as Scandinavian, especially, you know, if you consider Iceland where these products are even harder to to produce. So that, I mean, that, those essential products are really the keys, I think, to understanding how how the, that political order, order works on the ground. So are you saying heaven's a giant frat house? Yeah, at least <laughs> the Vikings, uh, at least the Vikings that compose this poetry it does seem that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and then as as time went on too, I mean, these chieftains as they consolidate power, like and then like we were talking earlier, like towards the Christianization period, and then it kind of reverts back to the original maybe meaning of the word Godi as well, right? Because they, they some of them become priests, don't they? They sort of also adopt that Christian political yeah. slash religious power and go like, yeah, yeah, we'll take that too. That looks pretty yeah. good. 
Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I think back to this syncretic period, right, where they're they're moving from from pre-Christian to Christian. The the earliest priests um, are of the of the chiefly class, and definitely in, in Iceland, place that I've studied the most. The early they try to monopolize the the uh, the priest positions partially to capitalize on that mode of taxation that comes in with Christianity is the tithe. You know, so there really isn't a formalized way to tax people in Scandinavia until Christianity comes, which is another reason why the kings freaking love Christianity, right? Oh, you're saying that it comes like in a package where I also get to tax people? So they, from that, the the documents we have in Iceland, for instance, uh, indicate that that a a portion, a third, a fourth goes to the priest, a fourth goes to the to the the owner of the of the church, and a fourth goes to the the bishop, and a fourth goes to the landowner. So if you're a if you're a, a chieftain who happens to have built a church on his property and happens to also be the priest, three fourths of the tithe is going to be in your pocket. I mean, so that's substantial um, economic wealth that you're you're pulling in. So Chris. The Christian institutions are going to push against that a little bit and and try to to prevent the chieftains from monopolizing that uh, ideological source of economic income. So is that what you would say was going on there at the farm at Reesbrew where you were working? That because I mean that's a pretty pretty good sized chieftain hall there, and then there's like the little church then right there too. So yeah. that person was probably doing that right, capitalizing on that. I think so. So, I mean, we like to explain things in the modern period as in, uh, you know, what, what's in it for them in terms of economics and politics, that would definitely be an enticement. You know, I, if we set aside the, the possibility that Grimmer Svartinson was a true convert to Christianity, which of course, you know, the sagas would like us to believe that they were uh, true converts to the, to the true faith. So would you be a chieftain if you were living in the Viking age? Would it be? I, I, I think it's risky business, man. You know, I, I'm Seems not like sure. a lot that, of work. Yeah, and I, I mean, I like a good party for sure, and I like <laughs> hosting them, but just acquiring those resources and, and the kind of the mob boss mentality of it would bother me. I think uh, a little bit. I wouldn't mind being like a court poet of a scald, a chieftain. Yeah, I wouldn't mind being a scald. Well, wow, that's a kind of kiss ass, isn't it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if either of you are are familiar with uh, any of the work by Robert Sapolsky. He's a guy who wrote uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and he studies baboons whose social hierarchies are not all that dissimilar from human social hierarchies. And what he studies in particular is the level of stress hormones coursing through these baboons. Uh, veins and and one of the findings that they had they they had hypothesized that people at the top of the pyramid or the social hierarchy would have fewer you know because they have more resources at their disposal so they should be healthier less stressed and the opposite was true that the people at the top of the hierarchy were more stressed because they were constantly worried that somebody was going to come and take their stuff uh, yeah. and for yeah. for a chieftain i imagine it would have been similar where you're constantly stressed because you have to put on a really good party every uh -huh. day to keep yeah. people on your side. Uh -huh. If you fail, they might leave, they go to the next guy and then the next yeah. guy will say, well, now we're just going to take over, you know, and yeah. 
yeah, what a stressful job. Whereas, you know, if you're just a, if you're just a sword for hire and, or yeah. a rock for hire, um, <laughs> you know, you could, what, what a great gig. It's like, oh, you want me yeah. to just fight for you every couple of weeks when you need it. And yeah. then for the rest, I get to just drink and eat and at your expense. Yeah, yeah I'm in, I'm in like, yeah. what an yeah, easy life. That's what I mean. I mean, if you could be the guy, I actually, I don't like the idea of, of, of dying perpetually either, you know, like heaven would like be hacked to pieces every day or being a guy with a sword. That's why I mean, I mean, if you could just have a liar and be in the background composing nice poetry about how cool the king or the, or the chieftain is, I think that would be the, that'd be the life. Plus you get immortalized and people remembering your poetry for, for up until today. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You'd be like one wrong verse and they'll kill you in your sleep or something. It's like... <laughs> so actually, A.L. Scott Lickers, this warrior poet who we started with, he's called a warrior poet because he, he also has some of the best poetry from the Viking Age, which you can you can read if you pick up A.L. Saga. But one of his, his best poems where he praises uh, Eric Bloodaxe, who at this point is King in York. He's a, of the Norwegian uh, family, King family, but he's over there in York and he hates Ale, but he gets, finally traps Ale and Ale says, um, you know, how about I compose a really cool poem for you uh, in exchange for my life? And Eric said, yeah, go ahead and try it. And he composes this beautiful poem. This is perfect praise poetry. And it's so good that Eric has to let him go. This is that good of a poem. But even though he hates and wants to kill uh, Ale so badly, he has to let him go. You know, so the power of poetry back then, you know, is mightier than the sword. I do want to challenge you on your your idea that the 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 poet or the scald would not be brought on to fight. Uh, and I have a, an example <laughs> of. <laughs> because uh and i think this is pertinent i mean it is later it is it's the battle of of hastings yeah. where you know william the conqueror is about to take on the saxons under harold godwin's son and they yeah. had a little bit of a standstill facing each other as armies tended to do and who's going to throw the first punch and it was the minstrel Taifer, yes. who went out and he supposedly he juggled a, a sword a lance and something else i don't remember a club or yeah. something and then he hurled the lance at one of the Saxons and killed him. And then that's, and then the rest yeah. is very well-known history. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. Uh, the, the poets, they don't, they don't get to uh, just sit back in, in the back line. Ale, of course, is a poet, but, you know, is a warrior. And, and it does seem like good look serpent tongue, which is a great name to his serpent yeah, yeah. tongue because, you know, his cleft tongue and he's so evil with his tongue, but he's also a warrior. So it, it's true. Uh, even if you were a great poet, you'd still have to take to the battlefield. So maybe it's just adding more stress to the job. If you have to battle anyway, then why compose poetry? So you mentioned, I think, just briefly before about um, women. I mean, it, technically, it's true that a woman, as I understand it, cannot be a chieftain as in acting out the like the the role the duties the whatever responsibilities of it but they could be like through inheritance or something find themselves in position of the office as owning the office right but then they had to like get give the the responsibilities to a, a man in their district or something like yeah that? that seems the way i mean we don't 
again, the thing about the Viking age is we're talking in general terms, but really we ought to maybe be talking in, in specifics because we don't really know how this worked out. I mean, we know, for instance, that Algibu, this um, the queen, uh, Knut's queen, English queen, was basically regent in Norway for a period, for instance, uh, in the early 11th century. We know another very powerful um, woman chieftain, I would say, leader, she's described as um, the deep-minded, mm. who led uh, one of the uh, big groups that, that migrated to Iceland uh, from Norway to, to the British Isles and then over to, to Iceland. And she made a gigantic land claim for herself in what's today Western, Western Iceland and was you know the matriarch of that family and her story is is told in in the lock style saga and saga so we have lots of examples of that with women really being prominent in in politics and even when they're not prominent in politics maybe sort of overtly yeah. the power plays uh are are, are very much there and people have theorized that you know, if the idea is that most of the people that get on Viking ships, now we, we're at the point now where we, where most of us who study the Viking Age do think that they were female warriors on, in, in some of these armies that probably weren't super common. They definitely weren't as common as like what the Viking show has, where like every third fighter is a woman. It probably wasn't like that, but they could cl clearly partake. There's, there's a, a great uh, burial from Birka, which which has is a is a biological female, and um, she's buried as a warrior, buried even with a, a gaming board that might indicate she had leadership, kind of almost general like role in in society. So all that all that to say, most of the time it was the men that got on board the ship, and the the women that that managed the household. So in absence of, of the leader, the male leader of the house, the, the, the women ran a lot of the, the sort of things that ran the, the economy of the farm uh, or the, and the chieftain's farms too. Right. They held the keys, right? They had the, the key yeah. ring with the keys. So the woman was in charge. She had the, yeah, that's, the, that's yeah. a famous symbol of the women's power within a farmstead or in a household is, is they, they kept the keys. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm always trying to uh, sort of, it feels like kind of popping the bubble, bursting the bubble a bit with my students with the subject, you know, because the the whole, you know, the, the female warrior thing is, it's such a big deal, you know, and especially in modern pop culture. And then, you know, so a powerful woman to them is A, living in this Viking egalitarian society, which we've said doesn't exist, but also who is, you know, sort of wielding swords like with men and stuff like that. And I mean, power brokering, like we were talking about with chieftains and, you know, males in leadership positions in this society. I mean, that's pretty much basically what it's about. But it's like getting modern people to understand power from the point of those people back there where, you know, it actually is a powerful thing to be these kinds of women who are in these other types of leadership roles. They may not have been a shield maiden. They may not have been 
a chieftain yeah. per se, but there were other ways that they exhibited power, you know, and the the household thing is one of them. Um, making the homespun is another one of them. Mm -hmm. Being like being able to go and actually get people together in a ship to go off to settle someplace else. I mean, that's a powerful act in its own right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for my money, it's like, I don't even want to go back and have to be a chieftain or a shield maiden. I'd rather just be like, you know, one of these elite women who are like, you yeah. know, you mentioned Lax Dela, right? What is it? The Guthrie, like the women who are like behind yeah. the scenes, you know, like egging the guys on, like, right. you know, like the, the goading strategies of, yeah, of the goading, yeah. yeah, just sort of like these puppeteers, you know, getting the yeah. men in their lives to do That's their right. bidding. And the guys can't say no because they're so honor bound. That is that, that famous phrase. Uh, cold is the council of women you yes. know when a guy goes off to put an axe through his friend's head because he can't stand his his wife's goading anymore but he's it, like she's <laughs> nagging me so yeah. much i'm gonna go and kill my friend but they're also i know in other worlds too that that are really interesting like the there are female scalds like they're court poets that are that are females that that we know of that's another avenue. I mean, another female empowerment um, indication is that they could divorce. I mean, very freely, for instance. That definitely wouldn't be able to do when Christianity takes a hold. So all you really had to do to divorce. Now, this was both males and females basically publicly declared you're divorced and you're out and you go back to your to your kin. So there is more, there is some, some freedom there in a sense, and some more independence. Uh, even the laws for land claims, you know, are, are very careful to say that both women and men could claim land in Iceland. Of course, the way that females are supposed to claim land is a lot more cumbersome. So men just have to run around their land claim with, you know, with a torch, which you can do like really fast, but maybe not in the rain. Anyway, it's, it's better than what women have to do, which is they have to walk with a cow around. So this is as you can claim as much land as you can. You can uh, circumambulate in a day, either running with a torch or dragging a cow. All right, so it's not really equal standards there. But you could still, as a woman, claim land for yourself. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think maybe to conclude today, I would determine that um, I don't think I really want to be a chieftain. It's like what we talked about before, CJ, and like what you were mentioning with the zebra thing or the whatever, that book, right? Like climbing to the top is okay. Getting to the top kind of sucks. You have to like sleep with one eye open all the time. And I really mean, stressful. Just, you have to meet your friends and give them drinks. And I don't know, it sounds really exhausting. I think like with everything, they're, they're, most of us are not built for it, but there are some people who are absolutely built for it. You know, if you have somebody who just, that's just how they live and breathe, right? You know, uh, what, yeah. what are some modern, you know, th like think of career politicians, right? Like people who what? I saw, because we're in Oregon, both Terry and I are in Oregon, and we have a senator named Ron Wyden. And um, he's, he's getting up there in, in years and he's looking older and uh you know and he but he's 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 in the news quite a bit because he he is a champion of quite a few causes uh, up in washington but i saw something yesterday on netflix that was like a history you know kind of modern history of stuff all the way back in like the early 90s and there's there's ron white or it's like 30 years ago like i'm only 35 so i would have been just little nina going around right and 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 there's ron whiten and he looked 
he already looked middle age and he's there you know like on tv like in the show that he was a congressman at the time like i mean he's been there forever you know so there's some people that just and they they make it work right and others can't help themselves exactly whereas for me like if I went to Congress, I'd be like, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I'd show up. And then within the first two weeks, I'd make a big stink at one of the things. And we'd make a whole movie about it. And I'd get kicked out. And I'd go home and be like, I'm happier here. You'd get canceled. Yeah. You'd get canceled. I mean, some people just can't do, I mean, we call them aggrandizers in anthropology, right? They just can't, they're just that alpha personality type that just is driven. I think maybe the baboons is a good analogy. You just kind of driven to maximize your power and you just don't know how to stop you know when it'd be much easier just to, to hang out right i mean hey we can even go to the sports right cristiano ronaldo is yeah i love soccer and he just can't just can't stop right i i always thought the best job in professional sports would be to ride the bench right you get paid you just sit there you watch the game you know you don't have to complete any passes. You have to score. Nobody's going to yell at you. You just ride the bench. You get paid. You go home. I, I mean, what's that, that's great. And, and you know, but that doesn't seem to to be the the ideal of of these uh, aggrandizers. Let's say, right? Not enough well, ambition. A, yeah, there's a well. I mean, I saw it for my novels that I write. You know, about the Vikings and my main character. Uh, he's He's a very broken human being. And that's that's part of what drives, you know, he's got his motivational narrative, right? He's got this external desire, which is to be remembered forever, to be loved by everyone. And then and then like, you know, this this underlying need to like please people, right? So he's just got these competing things of like they, they just don't work together. So it gets him in trouble. But then just, you know, I've had to like really like dissect kind of the human condition, also the condition of people who are like that. Because uh, and I, I read an article, I think it was. Anyway, it was years ago. I don't want to like, but it, it was all about how the people who are the most success oriented or who are like reaching for achievement all the time uh, are actually mentally ill. It's a mental illness. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so counter, it's so counter to like how you're supposed to be. Like, whereas the people who've got it figured out are the people who are just chill or who just like, oh, I like my little life. I've got my little house. I'm on the beach. Kind of that same story. You know, I, 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 I've been in the private sector for a while. And I, one of my first employers, that I remember I had lunch with him. He told me the story about like the, the guy who's fishing on the beach, right? He's in Mexico. And there's a guy, this is a, this is a common story in sales, right? Where they talk about the, he's, he's fishing on the beach. And then somebody, you know, somebody from the West comes up to him and says, hey, you know, why don't you like invest in a boat and then you can catch more fish. And then so and then the fisherman kind of says, well, why would I do that? Well, so then you could get a lot of fish and then get a, you know, start a fish processing plant and do all this. Then you could become rich and, and then you can buy a house on the beach. He's like, but I'm already on the beach. <laughs> he would be a terrible chieftain. He could never be the the fish hating fish flinger of, uh, right. of that society. Yeah, the chieftains are the people who are like, there's something, something broke in their head. And they're like, I want to be a number one. Mm -hmm. all the time <laughs> that's a whole other episode we're gonna have to have is like pop pop psychologizing the vikings <laughs> <laughs> mental health in the viking age right. well it's not just the vikings i mean look at like charlemagne for crying out loud look at him he was just like he's just hungry it's never enough 
there's always another horizon, right? And so, and that guy was pushing, pushing, you know, just always, yeah, we have these people throughout history who just push those boundaries. Then we see them today. Uh, oh, it's, maybe it's your broken people analogy is not, is not totally wrong. I mean, if you think about, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, PTSD and things like that, warriors coming home and, and just not being here and the, the damage that battle has caused. Imagine if, if that stuck your life. And going off on on hand-to-hand combat missions and coming back uh so are we dealing with a whole society that's suffering from ptsd or are they all basically certifiable i think vikings to a certain degree maybe but i don't because i think that the violent i think the context of violence i think you know the levels of cortisol are different than what we have i mean because with exceptions of rarity of like you know military people who actually go into combat or whatever which is even still rare in the world at least for western countries it's like we don't live with that kind of violence on a day-to-day basis and so we're not you know i think their threshold was a little bit higher for being yes. able to you know right i yes. mean even to the because I, I actually talk about my students about this even to the extent of like very few of us actually if you're meat eaters like even butcher the animals or kill the animals that we eat right i mean we, even that level of violence taking another life uh even if it's not another human being and stuff i mean we, we're not familiar with that life really anymore and so then the act of actually doing that it's pretty horrifying and traumatizing for most people but for the vikings it's like it's just thursday you know right <laughs> you know? yeah there was a different just, code <laughs> Just the child mortality rate alone would have desensitized people, right? Like every five kids you have, three of them don't make it to adulthood. So you're dealing with grief and trauma on the level that today we're just not, yeah, to your point, Terry, we're just not equipped to handle it. On that note, like, such a joyful end. Now I'm ready to go drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Thank you for joining us. This has been a very interesting conversation. I, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was happy to, to be part. And uh, I know we, we ranged widely uh, yeah. across the topic, but it's been a lot of fun. Good. Yeah. We kind of tend yeah. to do that anyway. We meander, but it's good. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. I, I learned some some new things. I think the feasting was very illuminating. I'd given that much thought to feasting. I mean, I put it in my books, but not as like the central piece that holds the whole fabric of like the expedition together. And that, yeah. that could, that's definitely some, some rethinking material right there. Oh, the good. cultural fabric of, of how I write these things. Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I love this, this, the feasting stuff. I, full disclosure, I probably stress it more than than others it's a big kind of focus for for me and for my work i think it's incredibly important to to structure the society but not everyone would agree with me let's just put it that way so speaking of your work as we kind of wrap it up here do you have anything that you're you're doing that you want to like you know plug or i mean i know you you have a book that's kind of in the works and um yes that uh, that that you've read terry Thank you again for, sure. for your help with that. That was so helpful. It's a book that, that uses archaeology and text and the new sciences to kind of start to, to shed some what I think is new light on, on the, the Viking Age. And it's called uh, Age of Wolf and Wind, Voyages Through the Viking World. 
and it should be out in the early fall uh, with uh, Oxford University Press. Essentially, each chapter probes those sort of data sets and asks uh, some questions about how we can construct history through using our written sources or archaeology and and science and then I, I try to look at those encounters that those data sets have and always ask what I call the three C's do they confirm each other which is the traditional attempt is to get archaeology to confirm the written sources we talked about that with with A.L. Uh, Scott Lickerson do they contradict each other sometimes archaeology can reveal things that disprove written sources or do they complement each other? So I'm always looking for confirmation, contradiction, and complementarity in each of my my studies of the different parts of the record. So, so I, I appreciate that. Yes, that that's coming out. I'd love if people would would give that a look. Yeah, it's yeah, it, it's great. It's something definitely to look forward to. And I I mean I I super love the interdisciplinary approach that you focus on because I think it, frankly it's it's just the only way that we can see the best picture possible is if we take into account all of those things. That's right. Yeah, I often use the analogy of so uh, if you're trying to. It's like operating with one eye closed if you're not like Odin or something, right? If you're if you're not using all the data sets available to you. So it just seems kind of at this point in time where we have so many resources, scientific resources, when archaeology is getting so advanced, it's sort of silly not to use those as as windows into the past. Did you just say Odin? Did you make Odin? Odin right? Yeah. One yeah, I don't think it worked, but I, yeah. Now we know why he was always seeking wisdom, but it's hard to know one eye. That's, that's like, right. That's right. How you gonna, you this is why he needs two wolves and two ravens to go and do his bidding, right? He can't, the old man can't even see. There's a whole disability of the Viking Age article, too, to be written about, you know, the, the various gods and warriors. Now, a lot of them are, are, uh, are maimed by battle and other things. Odin and Tyr. Uh, I think that that hasn't been tapped in this in this day and age when and there's lots of disability studies out there. Norse disability is something that should be investigated. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to give up an eye in order to find wisdom, but in the very act actually hamper your ability to see the wisdom, that's a Bush League move, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> Serious. Come on, Odin. <laughs> up your game. It was a trap. It was an absolute <laughs> trap. Exactly. As Mimir's well, Mimir, no, he's like, you can drink from the well if you want. I don't care. You're not going to figure it out anyway. Like, <laughs> I, 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 Mimir is another disabled Norse god. I, I just. <laughs> anyway, well, thank well, you, David. Thank you so much for doing this. Yes, absolutely. It was my pleasure. All right.